0: Well, good evening. So several weeks ago, I sat down with Pastor Josh, and he gave me the most unspiritual instructions that a pastor could possibly give to uh, to somebody like me. He said, "Now, this spring, there's going to be three or four times that I'm going to need you to teach on Wednesday nights." And I said, "Okay, got it." He said, "Now, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to teach the Bible." And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I don't want you to just jump in and do the next section on Exodus. He said, what I would like for you to do is to pick three or four topics and help everybody to dig a little bit deeper. And in doing that, just give these little breadcrumbs that kind of lead their way to the Taylor's Institute that we're going to launch next academic year. I'm sorry, I'm used to saying academic year, next church year, whenever we come back uh, in the fall. So that's what we're going to do tonight. This will be the first one, and hopefully you had a chance to grab that handout. We're going to talk about baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Christian life. And I want to begin by reading just really one passage of Scripture. Now, we're going to reference lots of passages of Scripture, and you see them there. In the handout, I want you to be good Bereans and to go back and try to uh, look later and make sure that I'm uh, on the side of the angels and I'm not a heretic leading you astray. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about this topic. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And we're going to read together. the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible about baptism. And we'll reference it a little bit later because it tells us what baptism means, what it symbolizes. Why is it that churches like Taylor's First Baptist Church say you need to believe and then you need to be baptized and baptism means dunking somebody under the water till all the hair gets wet and bringing them up instead of what some other traditions call baptism. And, and the reason is because of that picture that we see in Romans 6 along with a number of other biblical images including the one that Pastor Josh talked about uh, just this past Sunday with the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. or That was two Sundays ago. The Ethiopian eunuch going down into the water These are the reasons that we practice baptism the way that we do. Now, I want to begin just really briefly before we get into baptism in the Lord's Supper by talking about theology. I said this last week at the very beginning before Pastor Josh taught. I'm going to say it tonight. If you come to the Taylor's Institute event, uh, the seminar on Sunday, you'll hear me say it then. In fact, you'll hear me say it just about every time I teach, maybe not when I preach, but when I teach Theology is not first and foremost some academic discipline that's for pastors or theologians or philosophers or something like that. Uh, Theology at the end of the day is simply thinking rightly about God and his world for the sake of living rightly before God in his world. Theology is about life. It's about the Christian life. And if we start talking about theology and we don't grow in our love for the Lord and our love for the body of Christ and our love for the lost, we're doing it wrong. Because that's what thinking rightly about God and his world is supposed to provoke in us. And tonight we're going to talk about something that's very important to our theology as Baptists. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's important in a church like ours that's been around as long as we've been around, especially in an age where uh, you have lots of churches that are preaching the gospel faithfully and some that aren't, but they maybe don't know what they believe about the Christian life and what it means to be the church. It's important that a church like Taylor's First Baptist Church passes on our faith to the next generation. And not just our faith in Christ, but what it means to be a community of disciples that's a Baptist church, that practices certain things because we believe it better reflects what the Bible teaches than maybe what some other churches might do. And so tonight we're going to talk about baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Christian life. And you can see there, I believe on the handout, that here's the big idea for the night. The Christian life is a journey with Christ. And baptism and the Lord's Supper are key milestones in that journey, as well as important means of grace that the Holy Spirit uses to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. And so let's talk a little bit about what that means, and then we're going to make some application at the end to uh, how we ought to live in light of what the Bible teaches about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, there are four different ways to think about baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they're not different like they're in competition with each other. There are four different complementary ways drawn from Scripture that we might think about these two practices. One way to think about them is as means of grace. And what I mean by that is these are practices that the Holy Spirit uses to help grow us in godliness. And so that's one way to think about baptism in the Lord's Supper. Again, we ought to love Jesus, love the church, and love lost people more because we've been baptized. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, quarter by quarter, I guess you could say. The second way to think about the Lord's Supper and baptism is they are kingdom signs, signposts that announce to the watching world that Jesus is King. Now I think that's especially true with baptism. This is it's one of the reasons why it's not unusual when someone's baptized that we ask them two or three questions about their faith or maybe in some churches they share their testimony before they're baptized is because we're proclaiming the kingship of Jesus whenever we baptize somebody. He's not just the king of all. He's the king of her. He's the king of him. And that's evidenced by their going into the water. The same thing is true whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a very real sense. We are reminding each other around that table and reminding anyone who is With us, who's not celebrating, maybe they're visiting, maybe they're not a believer, we're announcing to them, Jesus is not just the king, he's our king. He's the king of all and he is our king at Taylor's First Baptist Church. He's my king as an individual follower of Christ. I love this third one. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are visible sermons. Now, we talk when we do baptism in the Lord's Supper, right? Pastor says something, person being baptized says something. Lord's Supper, we talk about what the Lord's Supper is, and we might read from Scripture. But for the most part, these are not verbal activities, right? They're physical activities. So I can remember the pastor of my home church in Waycross, Georgia, 25 years ago, uh, he would refer to baptism in the Lord's Supper as silent sermons. Not because we're totally silent but because, again, whenever we put someone into the water or whenever we partake of uh, the bread and the fruit of the vine, we are preaching the gospel. We're just preaching it visually, if you will. We've seen that already referenced in Romans chapter 6. We're proclaiming Christ. And finally, number four, baptism and the Lord's Supper are covenant seals. And what I mean by that is especially they are New Covenant seals. Uh, We are part of the New Covenant, right? People from every tribe and tongue and nation who have been born again, who've been transformed by the power of the gospel, and we are part of this worldwide community that we call the Universal Church, and we're part of this particular congregation. This local church, and baptism in the Lord's Supper... Remind us who we are and whose we are. Does that make sense? We're reminded of who we are someone who once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see by the grace of God, as well, of, as, well as whose we are. We are God's people, we're His adopted children, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. United with Christ by grace through faith. And every time someone is baptized, it's not just a celebration for that person going under the water. It's a moment of celebration for all of us because we are all reminded of who we are and whose we are. And whenever we're uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper, whenever we're holding those elements in our hand, it's a moment to remember We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. We belong to Jesus. They're covenant signs. Now there are two terms that are often used for baptism in the Lord's Supper. And you've probably heard these terms before. There are some traditions, fairly rare among Baptists, but there are some traditions who refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments. How many of you have heard that term before, sacrament? It just simply means mystery. That's the word. And, and the reason that some traditions refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments is because they are means of grace that the Holy Spirit uses to make us more like Jesus Christ. However, other traditions, and this includes most Baptist churches in most places through most of Baptist history, prefer the term ordinance to sacrament. And that's because they are, uh, just like an ordinance is a law, we might pass an ordinance about jaywalking in uh, Greenville, or we might pass a noise ordinance. They never get enforced, but uh, you, know, you might have a, a noise ordinance in Greer or something like that. Uh, these are commands From the Lord. We are commanded to baptize new disciples. We are commanded to do this in remembrance of me with the Lord's Supper. And so, most Baptist churches, and I think that probably includes Taylor's First Baptist Church, uh, we prefer the word ordinance because they're commanded by Christ and because we want to be really careful that we're not communicating like some traditions that use the phrase sacrament. We don't want to communicate that baptism in the Lord's Supper contributes to our salvation. There are some traditions that believe that. Not everybody who uses the word sacrament believes that, but some do. And so to avoid that confusion, to be clear that there are really, really important practices that are commanded by the Lord that we ought to do that make us more like Christ, comma, but... You don't have to be baptized to be saved. And you don't have to participate in the Lord's Supper to be saved. That's the reason that churches like ours prefer to use that phrase ordinance. Because it keeps the focus where it is. is—we Where it ought to be. We, we do these things because Jesus commanded us to do these things. And because they are those signposts for the kingdom. And, and covenant seals and, and silent sermons and, and all of that. And so... That's just a little bit of background for how to think about baptism and the Lord's Supper together. But what I want to do now is to focus a little bit more on baptism. So I said at the beginning that baptism, excuse me, that the Christian life is a journey toward Christ, being more and more conformed to his image, and baptism and the Lord's Supper are milestones in that journey. So along those lines, you might think about it this way, baptism marks the symbolic beginning of our journey with Christ. Now, I think that word symbolic is important because when does our journey with Christ actually begin? When you get saved, right? I mean, the journey begins the moment when you're born again. But that looks different for different people, right? Sometimes you're by yourself with an open Bible in that moment. Sometimes you've walked an aisle and you're praying with a pastor or a counselor in that moment. Sometimes you're uh, a small child at the bedside with a parent or a grandparent. You know, everybody's beginning looks a little bit different, but the public beginning of the Christian life, the symbolic beginning when we go public with our faith, that's baptism. That's that symbolic beginning of the Christian life. I have a couple of quotes here from you in the handout. Uh, One is from David Mathis. You may remember he was here a year ago uh, talking about uh, spiritual disciplines. This is what he says. Baptism marks new covenant initiation. It is to be applied just once to a believer deemed by a local congregation to have a credible profession of faith as entrance into the full fellowship of the visible church. What he's saying is, it ought to happen once. It ought to happen to somebody who at least seems to be saved. And when it happens, that's whenever that person becomes a part of the public body of Christ. And often very closely tied to becoming an actual member of the local church. Or since we are a Southern Baptist congregation, this is what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, our uh, convention's confession of faith, says about baptism. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk and newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. And being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. So again, that's what most Southern Baptists believe about baptism. Uh, and I think that's probably what most members of Taylor's First Baptist Church Maybe we wouldn't say it exactly like that if everybody wrote down a little paragraph, but I think they would probably all sound similar to the sort of things that we just looked at. So let's talk a little bit about what baptism looked like in the New Testament, because here's the thing. There's more than one practice that gets called baptism. Have you noticed that? There's more than one practice that gets called baptism. Sometimes, in some places, Baptism means sprinkling water on that baby. But in Baptist churches, or churches that are, as uh, my uh, president, Dr. Fent, one of our deacons here says, Baptist churches, even though they don't have Baptist in the name, uh, baptism doesn't mean sprinkling water on a baby, does it? It means immersing somebody who professes faith in Christ. So why is it that we do that? It's because of what we think the New Testament teaches about baptism. So we see in the New Testament that baptism is the full immersion of a Christ follower. That word baptism literally means to immerse, dunk, or dip. It doesn't mean to sprinkle or drip or flick. It means to... Immerse, dunk, or dip. So that's what the word means. And again, then we see things like with the Ethiopian eunuch going down into the water and coming up out of the water and whatnot. This is what baptism is. So it's the full immersion of a believer. And we think it means at least four things. It is, first and foremost, a public testimony of a new believer's faith in Christ and the church's recognition of that faith. Josh mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that sometimes we talk about a public profession of faith is when somebody walks an aisle and says, I'm a Christian. And, and that is a public profession of faith, but we need to understand that's not the New Testament public profession of faith. The New Testament public profession of faith is when someone says, Jesus Christ is Lord, and they're put under the water. And if you go to many other parts of the world today, where there's a greater cost to discipleship than there is in upstate South Carolina, and you talk to believers in other parts of the world, in the places where it's difficult to be a Christian, what many of them would say is anybody can pray a prayer, but it takes guts to go under the water. Because when you go under the water, you're saying to the world, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Several years ago, I was on a mission trip to South Asia. Myself, I was a faculty member at one of our Southern Baptist seminaries. Myself and another faculty member had about eight or ten guys on that mission trip. And it was in a predominantly Muslim country. And the missionary partners that we were working with had been laboring just for several years at that point, seven or eight years. And it's the sort of context where You know, this year they see three or four people come to faith in Christ. And this year they see eight people come to Christ. And this year they might just see a couple people come to faith in Christ. It's not a harvest field. It's one of the hard places. But by God's grace, while we were there, uh, through the work that they had already been doing with their national partners, the translators they were working with, all were men who aspired to be uh, pastors in uh, that people group, they had seen seven men come to faith in Christ. And while we were there, those men wanted to be baptized. And so we were there at one of the most famous rivers in the world, the Ganges River, and we were there to see those baptism ceremonies. Uh, Now, none of us were going to baptize them. We were were the, the white folks from North Carolina that were there, that not our field, not the folks we've been ministering to, but we were there to celebrate with those national partners and those missionaries that had been working in this field. And as one of the national partners goes out into the water and he called those men one by one, it began much like a baptism might happen in the States. He would say something like, Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I do. And have you repented of your sins and trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I have. And are you prepared to follow Him publicly? I am. Even though it may cost you your job? Yes. Even though your family may abandon you? Yes. Even though you may die? Yes. What is your confession? Jesus Christ is Lord. Then I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. By the way, seven men went into the water. Only six were baptized. One said, I'm not ready to do this yet. I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to lose everything. It's hard for us to think about baptism like that in the States sometimes but it's a reminder that it's, it's our public testimony to faith. It's whenever we say, not just to our parents, or the children's minister, or the youth pastor, or the good friend who led us to faith in Christ, but to the whole watching world, I'm a follower of Jesus. He's my king. It's also a pictorial representation of the gospel that the believer has responded to in faith. I referenced there Romans 6 and Colossians 2. We read Romans 6 at the very beginning of our time together. It's visually representing the death of the old person and being raised to new life in Christ. Baptism is a pictorial representation of the gospel. Baptism is the new covenant sign that a believer is part of the body of Christ. Galatians 3 and Ephesians 4 draw an analogy between baptism and circumcision. They say just as circumcision under the old covenant marked out men as being part of the covenant, so baptism in the new covenant marks out men and women as being part of God's people. Baptism is a covenant sign that we're part of the body of Christ. And finally, and I think this is so important in a denominational tradition that so greatly values missionary faithfulness, baptism is a key component in faithfully fulfilling the Great Commission. Go therefore to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Baptism has never saved anyone, but saved people ought to be baptized. And the Great Commission lays out for us that pattern. We're going, we're sharing, there's a new disciple. That new disciple goes public with baptism And then what do we do? We disciple them. We teach them to observe all things. Baptism is a part of the Great Commission. And so for all these reasons, Taylor's First Baptist Church, like many other churches in the upstate, you can throw a rock and hit a Baptist church in the upstate, maybe you've noticed that, but like many other churches around us, We want to see our practices in the New Testament. And I don't mean we're reading our practices into the New Testament. I mean the New Testament is informing the way we do things. We don't want to do it differently. We want to be a church that closely follows New Testament practice. And that includes the practice of believers baptism by immersion. As a public testimony to Jesus as a visible sign, as a pictorial representation of the gospel, as part of our obedience to the Great Commission. But baptism is one of only two ordinances. The other is the Lord's Supper. If baptism marks the beginning of our journey with Christ, the Lord's Supper is one evidence of our ongoing spiritual journey. You might think of it as a spiritually sustaining meal that we celebrate together throughout our Christian life. And again, I have a couple of brief quotes from you. One is from a book, cleverly titled The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper then pictures the gospel. If we grasp it truly, we are filled with trembling and joy. We tremble to think of the one who gave his life for us as we reflect on the cost necessary for our life. And we are grateful that he has saved us from ourselves and from the sin that blights our lives. Oh, how precious it is to live, especially when that life is eternal. The Lord's Supper reminds us concretely of the grace of God and the life that has been breathed into us via the gospel then here's what the Baptist faith and message says. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience, whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. Now, how many of you have ever heard the idea that there are some Christian traditions that believe in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is physically present in the uh, the bread and the wine. Have you heard that before? Some of you have heard that, the the real physical presence of Christ. Or maybe you've heard uh, the version of it that our Roman Catholic friends adhere to, transubstantiation. And then the idea is that uh, Jesus' flesh and blood is somehow physically present in the bread and in the wine or the grape juice because we're Baptists. We unequivocally reject the real presence of Christ in the elements of the Lord's Supper. That's not what Scripture teaches. But we joyfully celebrate the real presence of Christ among His people through the Holy Spirit. And that includes when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. What does Jesus say? My spirit will be with you. John 14, 15, he talks about this. What does he say in the Great Commission? And lo, I am with you always to the ends of the age. What does he say in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together? I'm present among you. The problem isn't with the idea that Christ is present. The problem is that he's is with the idea that he's present physically present in those physical elements. But make no mistake about it, when we commune together, he is spiritually present among us. He's here. We are celebrating that he's here. And one of the ways that we celebrate that is through the Lord's Supper. It's because of that divine presence that the Lord uses the Lord's Supper to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Now, the Lord's Supper is called by different names and different traditions, and and none of these are bad names. They're just different names used by different folks. So sometimes it's called the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, and that's because Jesus instituted the practice at the Last Supper. It's the Lord Jesus's Table or the Lord Jesus's Supper. Now, I've only been here at Taylor's First long enough for us to celebrate uh, this uh, ordinance one time, but I think that's probably the most common name used here. Is that fair? Typically called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table? And that's common among Baptists. Sometimes less common in Baptists, but this is not a bad word, it's called the Eucharist because it's a celebration, that's what that word means, of Jesus' sinless life and His perfect sacrifice. And so some folks emphasize that celebratory nature and they prefer that term Eucharist. Again, a little less common in Baptist churches, but hear me loud and clear, that's not a bad word. We want to celebrate Jesus when we participate in the Lord's Supper. And then finally, the other word that you hear, and then you hear this sometimes in Baptist churches, is communion. Because we are united with Christ by grace through faith and we are united with each other Through covenant, we're in communion with each other and communion with Him. And we're especially celebrating that whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper. And So sometimes you see that language of communion. These are all overlapping synonym type terms for each other. None of them are bad terms. It's just different traditions have kind of latched on to, uh, to one term or the other. And whenever we think about the Lord's Supper in Scripture, I like to think about the Lord's Supper in three tenses. We think about the Lord's Supper in the past tense. It's a memorial meal that recounts the saving work of Jesus Christ. What He did in the past. Do this in remembrance of me. But we also like to talk about the Lord's Supper in the present tense. It's a celebratory meal that proclaims the gospel to participants and observers, both visibly, we've talked about that, but also in whatever words that, uh, that, that our senior pastor or others might use in discussing the table and the meaning of the Lord's Supper. It's, it's a present tense gospel opportunity with the Lord's Supper. And then we can think about the Lord's Supper in the future tense. It's an anticipatory meal that reminds us of the promised return of Jesus. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, are you thinking about the second coming of our Lord? Are you reminded not just of what he did for you, but of what he's going to do when he makes all things new? when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The Lord's Supper is not just a reminder of what Christ did. It's not just a reminder of the gospel that's held forth now. It's a reminder that the King is coming and he's going to put to right everything that's wrong. He's going to fix everything. Everything that's broken. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder of that. Some of you may know the name John Stott. John Stott was not a Baptist when he was alive. He's a Baptist now because he's with the Lord. But John Stott was one of the most famous preachers of the 20th century. He was was an Anglican, a wonderful Bible teacher. And John Stott talks about, uh, in a famous sermon on the Lord's Supper, where we look during the lord's supper. And I love this. He says when we celebrate the lord's supper, we look up because we're worshiping the lord. And he says when we celebrate the lord's supper, we look in because the apostle Paul calls upon us to examine ourselves in 1 Corinthians 11:28. And when we celebrate the lord's supper, we look around. Because in that same passage, Paul talks about discerning the body, being reconciled with those who we might need to be reconciled with at the table. And whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look back, remembering the sacrifice of Christ. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look forward as we anticipate His second coming. I love that. I first heard that about 15 years ago and try whenever I'm participating in the Lord's Supper to think about those different ways that I'm looking so that it's not just a ceremony, even a really good ceremony, but so that I'm really allowing the Lord's Supper to help me grow in my walk with Christ so that I leave the Supper stronger in my faith than I arrived at the Supper. Now, a question that often comes up, how often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, there are some Baptist churches that celebrate communion weekly. I'm aware of a handful that do that, and I'm sure that there are more. And what those churches note is that in the New Testament, they regularly celebrated the Lord's Supper as often as they came together. So we ought to do like the New Testament and celebrate it every week there are some baptists that celebrate communion monthly this is what most baptist churches did in the 18th and 19th centuries and it'll you'll find this interesting uh, that monthly communion service was often right before the church conference that's how they would get people to come they would do church conference on saturday night or sunday night and they would celebrate the lord's supper and then they would do the church conference So everybody was in a good mood, Lord's table, now it's time to decide if you're going to vote to change the carpet or not. So that was the the practice in the 18th and 19th century. And you still find a lot of churches that do that. Before we moved to the upstate five years ago, we were members of the First Baptist Church of Jackson, Tennessee. And in that congregation, we celebrated the Lord's Supper monthly. And so sometimes you find that practice. But I think the majority practice, and I think it's the practice here at Taylor's First Baptist, is to celebrate communion quarterly and to often build a whole service around the celebration of communion where it's not just kind of something that happens at the end or in the middle of the service, uh, but everything kind of leads up to that. Whatever music is sung, uh, whatever sermon or devotion that, that a pastor might do, whatever the case might be, and, uh, and to really make it meaningful. And by the way, I, I don't think that uh, any of these practices are more right than the other. The Bible doesn't say do it every time. It doesn't say do it monthly. It doesn't do it doesn't say do it quarterly. It says as often as you do it. Do it in remembrance of me. So, uh, so I don't think one practice is godlier than the other. I'm just simply pointing out that different churches do it in different ways. So as we think about baptism and the Lord's Supper, again, I know that much of this that we're talking about is very familiar. To, uh, to those of us who are in the room, but I, I want us to build a bridge from theology to life. So what's the takeaway so that it's not just, well, I learned something about baptism I didn't know or I was reminded about something with the Lord's Supper I've not thought about in years. Well, one takeaway. We need to be faithful in evangelism so that we can make more disciples and baptize them in obedience to the Great Commission. Wouldn't it be great if the waters were stirred regularly? Wouldn't it be great if people were hooting and hollering and cheering as people come up out of the water on a weekly basis? Now, the Lord's the one that does the saving. We can't make that happen but we can be obedient to share the gospel, can't we? And when we're obedient, we can trust that the Lord of the harvest will be the one who does the saving and that we'll have many opportunities to celebrate the ordinance of baptism as a church. We also need to make a big deal out of every single baptism every single time. It's a celebration. My mother, who is with the Lord, was, uh, was the sort of individual who did not like clapping in church. Maybe you know somebody who doesn't like clapping in church. Maybe you are somebody who doesn't like clapping in church. And I can remember the first time in our home church that someone was baptized and the church cheered, and she thought that was just a little bit sacrilegious, that, uh, that people were clapping in church. But brothers and sisters, it's a celebration. It's not just some part of the church's liturgy. He once was lost, but now he's found. He was blind, but now he sees. And if we're going to be excited about anything, we ought to be excited about people coming to faith in Christ and that being visibly portrayed through, through the ordinance of baptism. I'm not saying you have to clap. But whatever excitement looks like for you, Let's get excited when people are baptized. Number three, as a church, we need to make the celebration of the Lord's Supper a major priority in the life of the body. Now, I'm sharing that out of ignorance. That may already be the case. You may be saying, Brother Nathan, it is a huge deal at Taylor's First Baptist, and I don't know because I just got here the day before yesterday. But it ought to be a big deal. It ought to be something we get excited about as a church for all the reasons that we've talked about, whether we do it quarterly or whether that pattern changes at some point. Every time we do it, it needs to be a big deal. And finally, as individual members, we need to prioritize regular participation in communion as an important part of our spiritual lives. We need to try to be here when the church celebrates the Lord's Supper. Not because you've got to do it to be saved, but because saved people celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it ought to be a priority to come together and to gather around the table and to look up and look in and look around and look back and look forward to the glory of God and for the sake of the church. Thank you so much for your time this evening. May we be Baptists to the glory of God.